The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. I have the distinct honor of introducing Kamala Masters and Stephen Armstrong. Um, last weekend, uh, I was uh, at the retreat, which many people here were at the retreat with Stephen and Kamala. They just got back, um, and we thank them for coming here so quickly. Uh, and all of you who attended the retreat, welcome back. Um, and last weekend, I, I think I mentioned to Steve that uh, I thought he and Kamala were midwives to many of our practice. And then I realized I probably shouldn't have called you a midwife, but nonetheless. Mid-husband. I think <laughs> and Kamala have been coming here through TCBC for 15 or 16 years, something close to that. Yeah. Many, many years at any rate, and had a, a real uh, strong commitment to this community and to many of our practices. So it's just a pleasure, those of you who haven't heard them speak before, I, I'm honored to present them to you. Uh, Stephen and Kamala have a, a very, very rich and deep practice uh, for many, many years, probably since the 70s on. They have studied with uh, masters in the Theravada Vipassana tradition in Southeast Asia. Um, I think Joanne Scarjoon said at the beginning of our retreat last weekend, we're so incredibly fortunate um, that we have them coming here rather than us having to go to Southeast Asia. So we're just very, very pleased to, to have you here. Um, in addition to uh, their coming to traveling all over the country and doing retreats, Stephen and Kamala have also been teachers at IMS for a number of years. Many of you may have been familiar with them there. And I also think later this month you'll be at Spirit Rock, teaching with Joseph Goldstein and other teachers as well uh, for a two-week period. So we're just incredibly uh, fortunate to have them here this evening. They also um, uh, have founded, co-founded, the Vipassana uh, Meta Foundation in Maui, Hawaii. A number of people have, have gone there and sat with them as well. Uh, and that uh, foundation is a Dharma sanctuary that created a hermitage for a long time, or a long term meditation practice. So they have so much to say, um, and they're such powerful teachers that rather than say anything else, I'm going to turn the mic over to them. So thank you all for coming, and um, welcome Andy and Kamala here. Hello. Um, some of you are familiar. I recognize some of you, and many of you I don't. <coughs> of course, um, it's always great to be back here. Uh, I think this is where we uh, plant the seed for people to eventually do a retreat with us, and so we're here to plant some more seeds, and we'll, we'll see some of you sprout at the retreat next year. Uh, one thing that we've noticed, and uh, I just want to comment on it, uh, we have been coming here for a number of years, 12, 15 or more years, and uh, what we notice is that uh, those people who have kind of stuck with us, or not with us, but have continued to do a practice over those years, and some of you have been practicing with us for 5, 6, 8, 10, 12, 15 years, some of you since we first started coming, um, it really makes a difference in your life. Uh, practice is cumulative, uh, and and just as if you practice anything, you get better at it. If you practice awareness, you get better at it, and uh, you get the benefit of the awareness. So, for for those of you who are you know new to practice or have a year or two in, um, 
great. Keep it up. Um, uh, I think you'll see that it's uh, not always easy, but it's increasingly rewarding. So uh, I don't think either one of us ever thought we'd be 35 years in on the cushion, but here we are. Yeah, well, the reason we come back is because there is such a rich um, community here and have the benefit of uh, Mark and Wynn and an extraordinary uh, support team and uh, volunteers that uh, you, um, unless you've lived in other parts of the country where you haven't had a local teacher and a local center, you may not understand just how fortunate you are. You're really extraordinarily fortunate to have this place, to have a teacher, to have ongoing volunteers who uh, see that there's Dharma continuing to be available. There's, we get requests from, well, all over the country, towns and cities and people and sitting groups that would love to have us or someone else come once a year, and you have someone here day to day. So um, take full advantage of uh, what is offered and uh, yeah, it's a good deal. So uh, I've been selected among the two of us to uh, begin the talk and uh, later on we'll take questions and uh, we'll both try to answer questions. Uh, sometimes I think we should just take questions, period, but why don't I speak a little bit and then we'll give plenty of time for questions. What time do we stop this whole show? 8.30 quarter time. Okay. So um, a year or so ago, uh, Mark invited us to, you know, if we would come and give a talk and then probably eight months ago he asked me what the topic would be and at that time I was thinking, well, I don't know what I was thinking, but I told him that, oh, well, I'll, uh, well, how about, uh, awareness alone is not enough. And then I was reminded that's what I gave as a topic recently, and I wondered, I wonder what I was thinking about at the time. But, <laughs> so, I'm going to wing it. But, you know, really, once you start the Dharma, once you start talking about the Dharma, and the Dharma is the way things are. Dharma is the way things are. So we could say the Buddha taught the Dharma. The Buddha didn't teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught the Dharma. Kept pointing to it. This is the way things are. If you look, if you pay close enough attention, you'll see, oh, in fact, this is the way it is. And when you understand from your own direct and personal experience, oh, this is the way it is, you will, I say naturally, uh, it takes some training, you will naturally want to live in alignment with the way things are because that's how you stop suffering. And when we when we keep beating our head against the wall of how we want it to be and how we expect it to be and how we hope it'll be and it isn't, well, we struggle and we get frustrated and we get disappointed and we get angry and we blame and we and well, it's hard to be happy when you do that. So, a lot of uh, our practice is to both hear teachers and others point to the way it is, and then to look within our own experience to, to confirm, is this the way it is for me? 
uh, just because you know some teacher says, "Oh, this is the way it is. Uh, believe what I say." Uh, the Buddha didn't say, believe what I say. He said, listen to whom you consider to be wise, and then uh, take a look for yourself. You know, take a look. Look deeply into your own experience of heart, mind, body, and if you find that what you've heard is true, then have the courage and the commitment to live up to it. But if you find that what you've been told is not true, or not true for you now, or you don't see it, or you don't get it now, then, okay, don't, don't feel bad about that. Uh, keep practicing, keep looking. And when I say looking, uh, what, what I'm really talking about is not just looking with your eyes out upon the world to see what you see and uh, to try to understand that. that That is part of living uh, skillfully. But another uh, equally important, maybe more important dimension is to look within with your mind. And I would use the word mind and heart interchangeably tonight. Um, but to look within your mind, with the mind, to see how you're relating to what you see out there. Because what you have, what you get, what you become is only half the equation. The other half of the equation is how you're relating to it. Are you relating to it with openness and accepting, acceptance and understanding? Or are you relating to it with resistance and fear and expectation and demand? Because in the relationship is the um, foundation or the basis of your happiness or your suffering. So uh, the whole thrust of uh, the Dharma and the thrust of living with awareness is to uh, investigate or to discover what is called the First Noble Truth, which is the truth of Dukkha. Dukkha has several meanings, but Essentially, it means that which causes you unhappiness. It's pain, it's insecurity, it's vulnerability, it's the stressful conditions of life, and, and it's a fact. We all live with uh, these conditions, and uh, to live in denial of them, to live in avoidance of them, to try to minimize them or rationalize them, doesn't really address them very effectively. They're still oppressive and they're painful and they're stressful and uh, just being aware of them is not enough. Okay, so here we are. Awareness alone is not enough. Well, if awareness alone is not enough, what's required? What else is required in our practice of awareness in order to uh, make it an effective vehicle for well, suffering less. <clears throat> now is when I should hand the mic over to Kamala and now that I set her up to <laughs> That would be stressful, so I guess I won't do that. <clears throat> Let me uh, uh, tell a story. Uh, I was in Burma in uh, January, February, and I'd gone with a friend, a student friend, who uh, with me for the last couple of years have been 
donating the funds to build schools in Burma. He's retired and has some funds or some money and he wanted to, to do that and I've helped him locate the monks and nuns who would build schools in Burma. Uh, and so we were going around, we were checking out some villages and we went to this one village of subsistence farmers out in the middle of Burma somewhere and we went and we met with the uh, headmaster of the school. There was a one-room schoolhouse, 100 kids in this one room. And we met with the village uh, headsman and a council of uh, farmers who run the village. And we met with an engineer, an architect, and the builder. And we had our own translator. And so we were just trying to discover what the village needed. How many kids live in the village? How many kids would go to school? If there was a school, is there any? Is there? Uh, is there? Is, can we build on this piece of property? And is there water? Do the kids know how to use toilets? Do we? Uh, do we have to? Can we put in water toilets, or do they need a pit toilet? And is is there a well? And oh, can we drill a well here? And we're just finding out the whole thing. And 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 besides the school, they needed a clinic because in this whole village there wasn't one Band-Aid. There wasn't one tube of antibiotic. There wasn't anything, not one anything for medical uh, treatment. So we said, okay, we'll build a clinic. To, we'll build a big enough building to have a clinic. So in the course of all this, uh, I said to kind of casually to the monk who was going to be the kind of a sponsor of the school, I said, uh, by the way, is, uh, we're assuming that the government is going to accept the school. Meaning, if the government, if the Burmese government accepts the school, then they will not give it, not give you problems building it, and they'll supply teachers, and they'll kind of oversee it a little bit. Not, not adequately, they don't fund it really, but they do supply some teachers, and, and they let you, they let you run it. Uh, without interference. So we had to check this with other villages to make sure that the, the government would accept the schools because the goes around closes schools that they haven't accepted. So this precipitated an unexpected long conversation among the villagers and the headmaster and the monk and the translator and, and I was sitting there and they were having a very uh, animated long and detailed uh, conversation and it was a little heated and and at some point in it I could see that there was some uh, some anxiety or shame or something you know and it, they, they were kind of like you know dancing around the issue and, and you know they, and and it seemed like they were reluctant to, to, to tell uh, my friend and I, what was going on, and so it went on and on and on, and I don't, I don't understand Burmese, and and so we needed everything translated, but they weren't translating the conversation; they were just going to translate the result of the conversation. So a simple question, you know, the government's going to accept this school, right? Yes or no? You know, 10, 15 minutes later, the translator starts telling us sheepishly, well, you know, the way the government is, and that, that, you know. And I was feeling, I knew what I was feeling, I was feeling, God, they, are they ashamed? Are they fearful? I mean, are we doing the wrong thing? Or are we, is there, an, is there a government informer in the school, in the conversation here? What, you know, so there was, so I was plenty aware of what was going on. 
But I didn't understand what was going on. So they explained to us over the course of the next few minutes that if we, as the donors, wanted to put our name on the school, the government would not accept it. However, if we did not put our name on the school, and the, you know the, the monk was the one who seemed to be responsible for building the school, then they would accept it. And so we said, ah, that's a, that's not a, that's not a problem for us. We don't care if our name is on the school. That, that that's not an issue for us. And so they were happy, and and we were happy, and then we moved on to other topics. And I confirmed then for myself that they were aware of what was going on, I was aware of what was going on, and we were all still kind of suffering with not knowing, and they had some fear of telling us, and they felt ashamed, and we were confused. And even though we were all aware of what was going on, there was still suffering. So awareness alone is not enough. What you need, primarily, is the right understanding. So. Once you understand what it is you're aware of, and you understand it correctly, then you can suffer less. You can make the proper adjustment in your relationship to it, and get on with life. Well, it's a long story to kind of confirm or point to the fact that we need to understand what it is we're aware of uh, in, our, in our awareness practice, in our mindfulness practice. And, you know, for many of you, you probably have a practice that says, okay, uh, sit down, uh, sit comfortably, and pay attention to the breath. That's a good, that's a good meditation. You teach that, breath? Pay attention to your breath? Yeah. Okay, I mean, I mean, you know, most teachers do. Pay attention to your breath. So, you know, you pay attention to the nose or the belly or the chest or the, watch the whole process. And uh, you, you pay attention and you try to be aware of the breath. Why? Why the breath? You know, do we know why? Oh, okay. So what if you were very successful paying attention to the breath, but you didn't know why? What do you get? Well, you get very familiar with the breath. So, right? And of course, you get familiar with how much the mind wanders, and <laughs> you know how painful it is to sit, and how difficult it is to pay attention continuously. But yeah, so. Why? Why is that important? Why is it important to, to recognize all that? One understanding that is, uh, it is important to hear before and during your practice. Even though your practice and your experience doesn't seem to confirm it. Now I'm going to tell you what this is. The information you need to hear is that the thoughts that you have, the feelings, the emotions that you have, or the sensations that you feel in the body, well, they're not yours. What? What does that mean? They're not mine. Of course it's mine. It feels that way. But actually, these experiences that we have that we become aware of in the breath. It is in the nature of a body to have these kind of experiences. The thoughts and the feelings and the, the kind of activity that you notice in the mind, the worry, the love, the joy, the sorrow, the, the clarity, the confusion, 
these are also natural activities of the mind. They, are, they, they happen due to causes and conditions that are beyond your control, beyond your immediate control. They just happen. Uh, right now, we're sitting in a room, or we're sitting in a couple of rooms, and it's kind of warm. Do you feel warm? Do you feel warm? Is the body sweating? You don't feel warm? You're under the fan. Hey, lucky you. Uh, so I feel a little warm, and automatically the body sweats. When the body sweats, automatically you feel uncomfortable. Automatically. It's not, it's not only me. It's not an exception to the rule that when I get hot, I feel uncomfortable. Everybody, when they get to a certain degree of heat, they feel uncomfortable. It's not particular to you. It's not some special attribute of you. It's not something that you can control even. If it's cold, as it is here in the winter sometime, uh, and you go outside inadequately dressed, you get cold. And things happen to the body when it gets cold, and it's not particular to you. When you get cold, uncomfortably cold or uncomfortably warm, the mind automatically starts kind of fretting and stewing and, you know, complaining and whinging and whining. And it says, oh, I should have brought more. I should have worn so much. I wish they'd turn up the heat or turn down the, turn up the air conditioner. And these kind of thoughts and this kind of whinging and whining and explaining and blaming, it happens automatically. It's going to happen. It happens to every one of us. What makes it so special? Why is it yours? Why is that your worry? Why is it your thought? Why is it your body? This attribute of owning, this is me, this is mine, this is who I am, the Buddha said, is wrong view. That is the wrong view. That's the wrong way of understanding what you are experiencing. Well, that, that's kind of novel because all our life, we've been told, this is you, Stevie, this is your body, Steve is your name, this is your experience. You take responsibility for your own thoughts, your own feelings. Your own... Yeah, we do. But that's only relatively speaking. When we, when we start paying really close attention to the momentary arising in each moment, what's this experience? We see that things just happen. Things happen. The body happens, the mind happens, the environment happens. We experience whatever is going on. We don't get to choose. You can't be cool on a hot day. You can't be you can't be hot on a cold day. That's not your choice. You can't control it. So too, the thoughts, the feelings that occur in the mind are equally conditioned. Conditioned by the past, conditioned by your understanding or lack of it, conditioned by what's going on around you. When our experience is conditioned, we see that in order to change the experience, you need to change the conditions. Well, we know that when you have some difficulty in your life, a difficult relationship with your partner or your employer or your employees or some government official or all government officials, uh, well, which is easier? Change your mind or change theirs? <laughs> well, often you realize you can't do any, you can't do as much as you might like. 
You can't change the environment. You can't change everybody's opinion. You can't change the way things have been done for hundreds of years. It's your choice. You can either struggle with that or change your own life. This is where practicing awareness and having the understanding of how conditioned everything is and then developing the capacity to recognize your own mind and to uh, make wise choice to relate to the conditions of life differently. That's our choice. That's our choice. If we want to stop suffering, we change our relationship to the conditions in life that cause suffering. Yeah, we make the changes we can. You know, we turn down the heat, we turn up the or we turn up the air conditioner, we turn up the heat, we do we do what we can. We're not just gonna be passive doormats to you know, everybody's keeping abuse on us. That's not what we're looking for. But there's a lot that we can't change. So in order to strike a balance, in order to uh, stop struggling, in order to suffer less. We need to see our own mind. We need to see how our mind is relating to the conditions of life, the given conditions of life. And in that, we need to know our mind. We need to be really intimately in touch with what triggers us to feel anxious, fearful, upset, frustrated, disappointed, happy, and every other emotion. Do you know? Can you see uh, the trigger for you feeling anxious, fearful, upset? Not always. That's why we practice. That's why we develop awareness in order to catch as early in the process as we can the triggers and the conditions that eventually result in our feeling uh, unhappy or our suffering. So when I say awareness alone is not enough, yes, awareness is necessary, but the right understanding of why are we practicing awareness, what do we do with what we become aware of? Because you know, sometimes we, we get a little, um, what would you say, we get a little strong-armed with our uh, with our heart, with our mind, and we think we can control. We can just say, mind, stop doing that. Oh, we'd like to say, you know, when we get upset, we get in a snit with somebody, and we say, that I, I'm, I'm, I'm upset, I'm, you know, afraid, or I'm frustrated, or I'm disappointed, and we'd like to stop suffering, but tell your mind, when you're, when you're angry, tell your mind to stop being angry. Your mind doesn't give a hoot. You, know, you, can tell, you can tell it, but it'll do what it is conditioned to do. And so, just being aware of your anger, just being aware of your frustration, just being aware of your loneliness, just being aware of your depression, is not enough. You need to understand how it happens, how you perpetuate it, how you uh, claim ownership of it, and have this expectation that you should be able to control it. Hello? That's not what that's not what you see. When you pay careful attention, you find out you can't control your mind. You can't control your reaction. You can't, you know, things are, we say, conditioned. 
they're outside of your immediate and ongoing control. So it takes uh, that understanding and awareness of it to confirm it, uh, at which time you can then begin to establish right relationship with impersonal conditions. Because these conditions that so directly and immediately and ongoingly influence or condition how you feel, how you're relating to the world, to each other. Um, I lost my train of thought. Just like that. It just goes... But, you know what? That's the way it is. You know, sometimes you, you, you can't you, you can't even remember what... You can't even sustain the memory to, to finish the sentence. Whose fault is that? Mine? Am I going to get you know embarrassed? Am I going to get ashamed? Am I going to kind of berate myself for doing that? Well, not tonight. <laughs> because I see, I know, this is the way it is. You know, the mind is not under... My, this, this mind, this, this functioning here is not under my immediate and ongoing total control. So, I, I try to accept it, but uh, what, what that requires is that we have a very flexible sense of ourself, which is uh, subject to uh, momentary reappraisal. <laughs> Because things change all the time. And our conditions, not only because we're growing older, but because that's the nature of the mind. That's the nature of the body. It's the nature of life itself. Is It's dynamic. It's alive. The mind is alive. The body is alive. It's changing. It's growing. It's, you know, it's living and dying all the time. But somehow there's a, a familiar pattern of who I think I am, how I am in the world, how I respond and react. But that's just a familiar pattern that is changing even as I speak. Yeah, when you look in the mirror tomorrow, you're going to recognize the person that's looking back. But it's not the same person. It's not the same body, it's not the same mind, it's not the same feeling, it's not the same emotion, it's not the same anything. When we pay, as we develop awareness, we begin to see this more directly, immediately, and frequently. Then we can grow in accepting the inevitable changes that we uh, come across, both in our body, uh, size, shape, appearance, uh, statistics, texture, all that that's going to happen, it is happening, and in the mind, which is constantly changing too. So if the body and the mind are constantly changing outside of your immediate control, who are you? Who are you? Whatever you point to as familiar you is not true. And so to know who you are you must pay attention. You must be aware in this moment to know. Otherwise, uh, well, it's hard to uh, uh, 
it's hard to be happy when you assume that today you are who you were yesterday. Not happening that way. And so we need to be aware, we need to practice awareness in order to have an up-to-the-moment accurate assessment of who I am in this moment in relationship to conditions which are also changing all the time. And in order to establish the right relationship, which is one of uh, awareness, acknowledging, uh, balance, non-reactivity, acceptance, and understanding, it has to be current. That's why we practice awareness training. Did I leave anything out? Uh, right view. Yes, this is not you. Right thought. Oh, yes, awareness training. In practicing awareness, uh, the 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 approach you how you approach your mindfulness practice, how you approach your meditation, how you approach the techniques that you use, whether it's with the breath or sweeping the attention through the body or, or watching the mind, whatever it is, how you approach your practice is vitally important. Because it's like this. If you have the expectation or the demand that you should be able to be attentive, or sustain your attention, and you try to do that, well, it doesn't happen that way, does it? And so we're trying too hard. The trying too hard is going to skew, or it's going to uh, create tension in the mind. Tension in the mind is reflected as tension in the body. And so after you've been trying, 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 you know, after 20 years, you know, you're kind of tight. So the first, one of the first uh, instructions is to relax. You know, relax the body, relax the mind. Oh, did I ask you this before? Relax. First, just, just relax. Relax the body. Just, however you're sitting now. Oh, just relax a little bit. Okay, relax. Sure. Now, when I say, or when I encourage you to relax the body, you know what to do. You go. Okay, you kind of settle down on your sitting bones a little more, and you drop your shoulders, and you relax the jaw, and you, you just kind of relax. Now, relax your mind. What do you do? How do you relax your mind? You go, <laughs> you know, and you just kind of, kind of melt your face somehow. How do you relax your mind? We know how to relax the body, don't we? We all know how to relax the body, to, to a degree. But do you know how to relax your mind? Huh? We're working on it. Yeah, we're working on it. But in order to relax your mind, you have to stop working on it. <laughs> okay, so, uh, well, that's the challenge of, of uh, a lot of our uh, practices. How to practice, how to cultivate an ongoing awareness without just making the mind more tense. Because as we know, tension in the mind is not usually a source of happiness. 
It's usually a source of tension and anger and frustration and, you know, tightness and, you know, expectation and disappointment and demand and... Okay. So now, relax the mind and be aware. Okay. So now, we're just sitting here being aware. What are you aware of? Can you hear the fan going? Can you hear the traffic going by? Can you feel the sensations of your seat, of your butt against the chair or cushion? Are you aware that your eyes are open and you're seeing, for those of you whose eyes are open and seeing? Are you aware of that? Yes. Are you aware that you're hearing someone speak and you understand the words that they're saying? Are you aware of that? I mean, it's all happening. We know it's happening. But are you aware that it's happening? Car goes by. Sounds happen. Hearing happens because the ears are working. But are you listening to the sound? Or are you just hearing it? sound, we can go into that sound of the chat, or we can just relax and be aware that we're hearing. You see the difference? Do you get absorbed in the sound, or do you stay present with the awareness of hearing? So the ongoing awareness of hearing and feeling sensations and not recognizing thoughts in the mind is very different than focusing on the sound and getting kind of pulled into it. Which is one, it's one way of practicing, focusing on the sound or focusing on the sensations of the breath and just getting pulled into it, kind of absorbed in those sensations. Or you can just kind of sit back and relax and just be aware that, oh, Breathing is happening, it feels like this. Hearing is happening, it sounds like that. With your eyes open. Well, just keep doing that for the rest of your life. <laughs> so, I've talked long enough. Um, I think you get the drift of uh, why awareness alone is not enough, uh, and the understandings that help support right effort in in practice, and why you want to be aware uh, in order to, to to establish the right relationship with the conditions of our life, and how to understand the conditions of our life that they arise due to conditions, causes, and conditions outside of our immediate control. And can we accept that? Okay. So, let's... I'll stop talking now. And I'll let you ask questions. Uh, and do you want to say anything? I'll wait for the question. Okay, so Kamala's going to wait for a question uh, before she talks. So, if there's any questions, uh, please... 
That's Kamala. <laughs> so, are there any um, are there any questions? There's one. Okay. So uh, when I explain the difference between what is under our control and what is not under our control, yeah. Actually, what we are aware of, is, or what we can uh, become aware of, is our uh, response or reaction to given conditions of this moment. The given conditions of the moment are there's a certain environmental conditions of sight, sounds, temperature. They're given, and there's a certain uh, we could say an inner uh, an inner mindscape that is kind of arising, independent of our intention. But how we're relating to it, that's something that we can, if we're aware, something that we can. Uh, have an effect on. So, uh, some of you listening to my talk may have thought, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just rambling on about this. This doesn't sound like anything Mark says. I, I think, I don't know who to believe now, and, and you're feeling a little bit doubtful and kind of like, is Mark the real authority? Or is, uh, who is this guy? I mean, what? I mean, you know, is there anybody thinking that? <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot. No, but if if you were, where did those thoughts come from? They just come. It's not like you had the intention. I'm going to think thoughts like that. It just came, right? But now, whether you express them and get angry at me or get angry at Mark because he doesn't say the same thing I do, and you believe me more than him, or you believe him more than me, you're going to get angry. You're going to blame. You're going to feel confused. You're going to feel doubtful. You have a choice. That, that's your choice. You're aware. You can you can you can choose to react that way or respond that way, but that's your choice. But just whether you feel confused or not, well, that may not be your choice. How you respond to confusion, that's your choice. Right? I want to say something. So your question is. What is happening that's not under our control? Something like that. An easy way for me to look at that is what has already happened is not under our control. It already happened. The, the sound happened and the response to the sound happened or the reactivity to the sound happened. Either the reactivity to it is pleasant or it's unpleasant or it's uh, attachment or aversion to the sound. All of that already happened. So here we have awareness. If we're practicing, there's awareness, hopefully, of all of that that notices, oh, there was a sound, there was a, um, a reaction to it. And if that awareness is there and awareness builds and becomes very strong, there is some space there is some time. There is an uh, opportunity with wisdom to make the next step, if there should be one, if there needs to be one. So when we say 
awareness is not enough. It's not demeaning or diminishing awareness. Awareness is very, very important. Uh, because if we weren't aware, then we would just keep reacting. And that would be, er- most every- everything is out of our control all the time. But it leaves the space. Space for what? Space for wisdom to arise. So when we say awareness isn't enough, what we are uh, implying there is we need to bring some wisdom into the picture. So the wisdom could be some practical wisdom of knowing, oh, this um, noise is there, there was a reactivity with aversion, and there was might have been some words in the in the mind, and you know, some maybe why is this happening in some anger but if there is some wisdom there that's why the awareness is not enough if there's some wisdom there the wisdom says here are the here's the anger here are these words I'm not going to let them just come out of my mouth you make a choice so wisdom what wisdom sees is the, uh, the that what's going on and if we perpetuate it can either lead to happiness or unhappiness, suffering or the end of suffering. If wisdom sees that it can lead to happiness, that it can lead to the end of suffering, then it can make a choice of what to do next. And that is under some control. Whether um, whether that actually happens when we do something about it, uh, we don't have control over that. Whether when we make an action out of that, we don't have any control over whether that action comes about, whether the purpose that we're doing that action for comes about. But we do have some control over what words come out of our mouth, over what uh, action we take, and even if we become very, very aware and we understand, oh, this the mind is coming up with more and more anger and it's seen immediately it's possible to stop the proliferation of anger in the mind by the simple awareness of it so there's a lot of space for wisdom to come into the picture when first of all awareness is there awareness of what's going on within us which gives a space for wisdom to come into the picture to know what action to take so much is out of our control, but the thing we do say or think next is in our control because of wisdom. Physically impaled. Physically impaled. By the, the sword. Mm-hmm. Um, 
how can I use this practice to go through the next eight months keeping track of every incident because I have to do that. Yeah. And letting there be nobody there for the sword to go to. Uh-huh. So I'm going to try to repeat in, in general so people on this side can understand. So you have been experiencing, experiencing some harassment at work, and you're not going to take legal action, but you're going to take affirmative action. And you have eight months to endure what you need to endure as you go through take, being very careful about being precise about the details, etc., etc. You have succeeded in not uh, hating anyone, but in the meantime, you've been feeling physically impaled, like swords are impaling you, and you wake up grinding your teeth and all kinds of bodily tension, and, and obviously tension in the mind also. So what, what to do about this? Um, and how do you sort of, I think one way to say it is not take it note so personally, so that you can kind of mm, know that all this is happening and, and, and the way I like to say, say it is Aikido it, you know, just get stop being a target, uh, all of that. So one of the ways that uh, where, where awareness is not enough, just going back to the same subject, is so say there's just in a very practical practical way, there's, a, there's an awareness of tension in the jaw or awareness of tension in the mind. And um, sometimes that, say there's awareness here in the jaw, um, I would suggest not to focus on the bodily tension, but to sometimes uh, take a look at what's going on in the mind to widen the attention. So in the last year or two, I've had a little more um, guidance in from uh, one of our Burmese teachers in asking myself what's going on in the mind in relationship to this bodily experience and to not just focus in on uh, say a bodily experience. It, also I just want to expand that. Say you're at work and one of these um, examples of harassment uh, start up again or happen. So it's so easy for our awareness to be out there, to be, this is what's happening out there, this is what's happening out there. But to ask yourself, even in your daily life, what's going on in the mind right now? And to always try to widen, broaden your attention. Because when you focus in, you put yourself and the whole experience in this body-mind continuum in a pressure cooker. And that, that just is, um, it's not onward leading <laughs> to freedom. So the first thing you could try to do is with experiences out there and experiences in very much right in the body, to just ask yourself, what's the mind doing with this? What's the mind doing with the experience out there? And so that's why it's not just about awareness. 
you, you need to know how to use your awareness. So you bring wisdom in. And when you, when you see what's happening in the mind, that is the birthplace of suffering, really, the, in, in one's own mind. So to look at the mind, and this is where equanimity practice, which we've been doing a lot of in recent retreats, including this last one, equanimity practice is so important to uh, get some spacious balance around this birthplace of suffering, around your what's going on in the mind. So some of the uh, equanimity phrases that incline the mind more towards a spacious balance can help. For example, just something very um, simple is, okay, this is what's going on in the mind right now. Just And saying that with complete compassion. Um, or saying something like, may I open with awareness and balance to what's going on in the mind right now. So you're saying things which direct yourself to uh, to some greater skillful way of, of uh, experiencing your own mind. Because if you don't experience your own mind, what and you're just out there or with the bodily sensation, layers and layers and layers of resistance and aversion, not wanting it, denying it, many, many layers of delusion and more aversion uh, build up. So if you can start looking at your own mind, some of these layers of aversion will be touched. And just like us as human beings, you know, we want we want that to be touched. So if you can touch it with awareness, then touch it with the skillful means of equanimity, your own mind, there's a more likelihood that the, um, the outcome will lead to the end of suffering for yourself and others, rather than adding more and more layers of suffering. So expanding the field of awareness and also inclining the mind towards equanimity, which brings about greater possibility for the end of suffering. Now, how does expanding the mind and bringing about more equanimity bring about a sense of like, maybe you won't take it so personally, which is part of your question, right? When the mind is in some place of equanimity, it's able to see more clearly. And this may be foreign to uh, some of you, but those of you who have meditated will may, may catch this and understand or catch a thread of it, that when the mind is in equanimity, it's not attached to what's pleasant, nor is it averse to what's unpleasant. That's one of the functions of equanimity. So there's the ability to see this moment, for example, of um, aversion in the mind coming up or fear in the mind coming up. It's possible to see that moment as a simple phenomena coming up and changing and dissolving. And there's no like identification or attachment to a sense of self around it. It's not making that event into, I am fearful, I've always been fearful, and I will always be fearful. It sees that event as an impermanent experience. 
the event of fear, it sees it as impermanent. And sometimes we we understand that oh this this impermanent situation is is not there's not a solid me anywhere here. It's just a, it's just a part of the changing phenomena. And so in that way it's like you're not standing there with your hands like this and a big X on your chest, you know, and uh, throw that sword right here at me. You know, it's like that sense of you isn't so solid anymore. That, that doesn't mean you don't protect yourself. It means actually that you have greater skills for protection. Your skill set is, um, you know, is stronger to protect. So you're not solidifying around that event. So is, is that helpful? Okay. <laughs> Don't take my word for it. <laughs> um, I was going to, would there be a role uh, in this equation for uh, loving kindness as well? Would there be a role in this equation for loving kindness? Yeah. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up because Equanimity, when we have equanimity, it is already implied when you, when you understand the practice that there is a fullness of care there and there's a fullness of um, this unconditional, unconditional care for yourself and for whoever else is in the equation. So it's really important to, whenever we incline the mind towards equanimity, to have that kind of silent tone of um, loving kindness in there, of metta in there. So it's not like saying this is how it is right now, you know, it's just like some kind of like thesis bummer, you know, this is how it is right now, but it's more like, okay, this is how it is right now. With actually, when loving kindness turns to suffering, there's, there's compassion. That loving kindness turns to compassion. So more specifically, it would be kind of like a quiet inner tone of compassion that faces that experience of suffering in the heart, inside, outside. Yeah, I was saying this person. Going back to a, the earlier question, um, I'm seeking a little clarity for part of her question was that she awakes from a sleep, grinding her teeth, her heart racing. I experience, you know, in a sleep, all of a sudden I'm having some dream of being violent, aggressive, or at least within in an aggressive or violent situation, but oftentimes it's I being that way. And then I awake, and my heart is just pounding and going 100 miles an hour. That doesn't feel good. Um, I wasn't aware of those thoughts. I was sleeping. This was a dream that came. The practice that you were talking of and uh, the equanimity, will that uh, tend to eliminate those kinds of dreams? Or are those dreams just something else? I'm not quite sure how to yeah. handle those. Will that eliminate those in the yeah. future? I think the the question of will 
will and equanimity or loving kindness eliminate those dreams. <coughs> I'm sorry, I, I don't know you very personally, but I'm, I'm going to use your question as an example of. Okay, so <coughs> don't don't take offense at what I say. Okay, uh, the question is coming from the wrong place. <laughs> because the the question, yeah, right. Why, what do you mean? Because if because the question is. I want to get rid of these dreams. I want to get rid of them. That in itself is aversion. Violence and aggression is all a kind of aversion. Rather than wanting to get rid of the dreams, if you understood aversion, I can't say you wouldn't have those dreams, but I think you're less likely to have those dreams. So what I what I what I would suggest is when you, in your daily life, in your waking life, when you feel aversion, you know, anger, hatred, irritation, frustration, uh, judgment, cynicism, these are all forms of fear, these are all forms of aversion. When you feel aversion, wow, welcome it. Just say, okay, this is aversion. This is the nature of aversion. What can I learn about the nature of aversion? How does it feel in the body? How did it get triggered in the mind? What's it doing in the mind? What kinds of thoughts are being conditioned or precipitating when aversion is in the mind? How long do they last? You know, how does it make me feel? You know, so that you're investigating, uh, not really asking yourself these questions and not really trying to answer them, but you're holding your attention around this experience of aversion, just observing it, just watching what's going on there so that you will understand the nature of aversion. Everyone experiences aversion, right? Everybody experiences irritation, frustration, disappointment, anger, you know, at times. Okay, so it's not personal to you. You know, it's, it's just, given the conditions, it's going to arise. That's it. So, let's learn about that in order not to be caught and identified in it. Caught in it and identified with it, right? That's what... That's what you want. You really want it to be so that when you want it so that if violent images flow through your mind, you see them as just the impersonal images flowing through your mind personally. And it's not yours. You don't get identified with it and you're in no danger of acting it out and you're not suffering with it. Right? Wouldn't that be good? So you're not trying to get you're not trying to get rid of those images. You're trying to understand the version so that you don't get identified with thoughts, feelings, uh, the conditions of a version. Okay. I'm going to get you in just a minute. What interests me about your question, though, <laughs> is, isn't it amazing? Now, you said that you woke up from a dream, and you woke up from a dream, and you were, you were thinking something. But what you notice when you woke up is that your heart was racing and you were really upset and da 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 da. The mind was knowing the content of the dream, but you were not aware of it. Right? Now think about that. The mind is knowing all kinds of stuff going on, even in your waking hours as well as in your sleeping hours, and you're not even aware of it. 
Think about that. Your mind, I say your mind, the mind that's happening in this physical mental process here, knows all kinds of things. It's even getting angry, and you're not aware of it. You're not aware of what's making you angry, not even aware of the anger. It just at some points during the day or in the evening or at night, you wake up and you're really upset and angry without ever knowing how you got there. Is there a reason to practice awareness training? <laughs> Hello? The mind, the mind does its thing automatically, doesn't it? This is, this is just natural activity of mind. It's knowing sights, sounds, thoughts, mental images, feelings, emotions, all kinds of things. It's just knowing them. Some of which we're aware of, a lot of which we are not. The ones we're not aware of cause us a lot of anxiety, stress, distress, fear. Right? That's why we practice awareness training. To become aware of what the mind is knowing and doing. So that we're not so blindsided. And we're not so jerked around by the mind. So the question is, what is the practice for expanding the mind and creating spaciousness? Yeah. Well, sometimes it's, it, most of the time it's self-directing. You know, when when we find out or we, we see in our practice that we're getting too tight around something, we all know when that is, or we, we wake up to when that is when we're feeling really tight. A lot of us feel it first in the body. Sometimes some of us feel it more in the mind first. And we may just have to ask ourselves to, first I was uh, responding to that here, to say, what's going in on in the mind in relationship to, say, knee pain? And when when we do that, it it automatically expands right there. Because it's not just focus in on one thing and noticing, you know, the arising and passing away of little, you know, pixels in the body. It's, um, a lot of times that doesn't teach us too much, you know. So to, to ask ourselves to take another step, to look at what's going on in the mind, that takes some practice so that we, that we make it a habit. It's taken a, a little while for me to just kind of back up from the focus that I put on the body a lot and turn the attention to the mind. Some of that training had to do with asking myself that question over and over again, giving myself that self-direction. So it took some intention to do that, another step to do that. And we all can do that without throwing a rock in the pond of, you know, some calm pool of the mind. It's, it's totally possible. So uh, that, that step takes some intention, it takes some practice to make it a habit. And the same with just opening the attention around what's going on. Uh, when we feel kind of too much of a tightness around anything going on in the body, anything going on in the mind, we can take our att- attention intentionally to hearing, to make it 
a bigger field of awareness. So a lot of times when I'm experiencing a lot of pain in the body and I realize I'm just kind of like laser beaming it and feel like a big pressure cooker is happening with it and it gets to a point of pushing the envelope, you know, and it's it's uh, depleting the energy, feeling withered, etc. Then I turn the attention to hearing and just let the attention go very, very wide. And then from the place of hearing, hearing, whatever their, whatever sounds are, then from that uh, large place, then I bring it back to what's going on um, in, the, in the body or maybe in the mind. So that those uh, steps both take intention and they both take some, um, their skillful tools, which is wisdom. You know, it's knowing the balance of what's going to keep our energy going, <coughs> to keep the mindfulness going. Yeah. I think it's maybe one more question. Yeah. Um, I've recently found out that my aunt has cancer. I think I felt every aversion uh, emotion that Steve mentioned, along with a full spectrum of emotions. And for me, I feel a little confused in how to support a person going through chemotherapy. So I feel like, how can I be present and compassionate through the process? Yeah. So I'll answer a little bit. Maybe Steve has some. So just uh, finding out that Aunt has cancer and has felt many, many emotions that um, Steve is always so good at describing <laughs> the various emotions. And how can one be of help to somebody going through that um, so that, you know, you're, you're coming from the best place possible. Well, first of all, it's to just accept in oneself that we are going to go through all of that. that if we go through all of that, when we go through all of that, it, it, you're, we're not bad people. We're normal. We're just normal people experiencing normal things, you know, that come out of fear and come out of the not so familiar with dealing with a lot of pain, pain that we see around us and um, just giving ourselves a lot of space to be human. And you know, when we do that for ourselves, then it allows that other person to be totally who they are and to experience their pain and to experience their fear. And because they see that you can, you're trying your best to accept it in yourself. You're trying your best to accept it in them. And then be truthful, you know, to say that um, it's really hard to do this, but I'm, I'm with you. I'm just. If we feign courage, it, it doesn't go over truthfully, you know, with people who are in that state having, you know, close to death or going towards it, they're very, very perceptive. And so if we say, no, I'm, I'm strong, I'm with you, it's not helpful. It's more helpful to say, it's really hard for me, but I stand by you. And then that helps them in their process, too. So, I mean, there's all kinds of med meditative techniques, but I think when you just get down to the salt of the earth about it, that's, that's what they're going to 
understand. Yeah. I think we're reaching the time now, so we better. I'm going to hand it over and, and thank you all for your very wise and compassionate questions about life and your practice. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.